Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 12, The Bride Ships of British Columbia. While many Canadians may be familiar with the story of the Fille de Roi, a 17th century effort to bring more women to the colony of New France, so modern-day Quebec, a relatively unknown 19th century chapter in British Columbia history follows a similar narrative, when efforts were made to encourage the immigration of white British women to the British colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia. This is that story. Our book recommendation for today is Voyages of Hope, The Sega of the Bride Ships by Peter Johnson. This was published in 2002, and it is a well-researched and easy-to-read account of the motivations behind and the struggle to bring single white British women to the British colonies of the Pacific Northwest. And it includes some very harrowing details of that journey, well worth the read. Okay, the story of the bride ships actually stems from two key aspects of life in the British Empire in the 19th century. Firstly, that England's cities were overcrowded, and secondly, that the two colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia, yes, they were two separate colonies, suffered from a serious demographic imbalance. These two colonies were actually not merged into the colony of British Columbia until 1866. So you have the mainland colony of BC and the island colony of Vancouver Island. Now, both colonies suffered from a perceived demographic imbalance. The perception was that there were too many men and not enough women. Of course, in the context of the period, the women they're talking about are not enough white women, and specifically not enough white women of Anglo-Saxon stock. The elites of the two colonies became very concerned about this and began to try to formulate plans to correct this perceived demographic imbalance. But we actually need to go back to England to really get our story started. So let's start there. The 19th century had witnessed hundreds of thousands of British people, mostly men, leave Great Britain for her colonies. At the same time, England's cities, especially London, were entirely overcrowded with more and more people moving from the countryside into the urban environment. 
The great majority of people living in London and other cities of Great Britain were generally working class. Many of them were struggling to barely stay above the poverty line. Overcrowded slums, poor sanitation, and unstable job environment all led to concerns over a growing crisis about the poor masses of Britain's urban dwellers. The great fear, especially amongst the British elite, was that these masses could threaten stability. They could threaten law and order within Britain's urban environment. And many of these elites saw sponsored emigration schemes to the British colonies as an answer to Britain's overcrowded urban situation. Thus, throughout the 19th century, numerous schemes sponsored the travel of Irish, Scots, Welsh, and English to places throughout the empire, including all over British North America. Now, into this story steps Angela Georgina Burdett Coutts, the inheritor of a massive fortune, millions of pounds from her grandfather who ran and operated the Coutts Bank. When she received her inheritance, with the death of her father when she was only 24, she became the wealthiest single woman in all of England. She set out to devote her life to philanthropy and social reform, and thus became very concerned about the status of young women in the chaotic urban centres of Great Britain, but specifically her home city of London itself. In the late 1830s, she befriended a young author named Charles Dickens. Yes, that Charles Dickens. And it was he who first suggested the idea of a sponsored female emigration scheme Angela seized upon this idea from the soon-to-be world-famous author. To help forward this emigration scheme, Angela came into contact with a group known as the Columbia Emigration Society. This was a charitable organization established by middle-class reformers that sought to help young women of the working and poorer classes to emigrate to Vancouver Island and British Columbia. At the same time that Angela Coutts and the Columbia Emigration Society began to cooperate, another influential group of female social reformers would come to prominence in London, the famous Ladies of Langham Place. This was a collection of upper-class English women devoted to improving the lives primarily of middle-class women, a strange blend of Victorian feminism and class consciousness. Simply put, these women feared that there were not enough men for middle-class women to marry, considered sort of the ultimate goal for any respectable woman in Victorian England. Thus, steps needed to be taken to encourage middle-class women to find employment or move to places in the empire where women could find suitable husbands. In many ways, the ladies of Langham Place were at once ahead of their time, in terms of Victorian-era feminism, while also embracing deeply held social beliefs about the role of women in society. For instance, they published a popularly read journal which dealt with a variety of issues affecting women of the day. They created the Society for the Employment of Women, which tried to promote and initiate wider social acceptance of women in the workforce while at the same time also providing training opportunities for women seeking employment in fields normally considered male occupations. Certainly, 
the ladies of Langham Place saw emigration as a possible solution to the plight of the middle-class Victorian female. One of the members of the ladies of Langham Place, in fact, founded what was known as the Female Middle-Class Emigration Society in 1862. As the name suggests, this was a society devoted entirely to promoting the immigration of young middle-class women to the British colonies. The ladies and the members of this female middle-class immigration society saw Vancouver Island and British Columbia as the perfect destination for their intended middle-class protégés. All of this, however, meant that there were two concurrent streams of thought in regards to female emigration. The ladies of Langham Place advocating for the emigration of middle-class women, and specifically middle-class women, while the Columbia Emigration Society, backed by Coots, advocating for the emigration of the poor and working classes. Now, before we continue, I just want to give you guys a reminder. You can find us on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, SoundCloud, and, of course, at our homepage, CoolCanadianHistory.com. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram if you search Cool Canadian History. And if you go to the Facebook page or the website, you will see links to PayPal and Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. Listen, guys, we survive solely on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program as well. On both our Facebook page and even on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Okay, now back to the program. You see, the question now with these concurrent streams of thought about female emigration was, what exactly was going on in Vancouver Island and British Columbia to give people the impression that women were needed at all? Well, to understand that, we got to go to mainland British Columbia in the 1850s. You see, the discovery of gold in the Fraser River in 1858 had set off a massive gold rush that saw tens of thousands of people, mostly men and of great concern to the British, mostly American men, flood into the region that was previously inhabited by a small scattering of Hudson's Bay Company employees and a much larger population of First Nations. Almost overnight, the gold rush had dramatically altered the demographic makeup of the two colonies of the Pacific Northwest. British Columbia, that's mainland BC, where people would go to search for gold in the Fraser River and later up in the Caribou, but also Vancouver Island, because many of the arrivals in the colonies had to go through Victoria on their way to the mainland. So generally speaking, the ratio of women to men on the BC mainland was about one woman for every 10 men, while on Vancouver Island it was slightly better with about two and a half to three women for every 10 men. Frankly, many men felt that their marriage prospects were dismal at best, and many would leave the region because of it. But the effects of this demographic imbalance on labor was also a concern, meaning the, the effects of this demographic imbalance on the possible jobs and people that could work in the colony. You see, especially amongst the elites in Victoria, many of the elite families, uh, extremely influential throughout the colonies of the Pacific Northwest, would remark 
on the uncivilized nature of their housekeeping staff, their domestic staff. By the uncivilized nature, they meant the fact that most of their domestic staff were, in fact, Chinese men. You see, the limited number of lower-class women on Vancouver Island meant that most of the elite families had to hire Chinese men to act as servants, butlers, housekeepers, even in replace of what would be normally called a maid. For many of these families, especially in Victoria itself, who were steeped in the traditions of the wealthy Victorians of the age, proper working-class women were needed in their homes as a mark of respectability. But the lack of marriage prospects for men and the lack of respectable domestic labor were the least of everyone's concerns. You see, what primarily concerned many of the white elites of these colonies was the fear of miscegenation, that being the sexual relationships and ensuing offspring of white men and indigenous women. You see, many men, especially in the rural areas of the colonies, were developing conjugal relationships with local indigenous women. The fear of a colony of quote-unquote half-breeds was absolutely profound amongst the elites. To them, these European indigenous relations were nothing less than a sign of the decline of Britishness within the colonies. That Britishness included notions of law and order, civilization, and most importantly, Christianity. Without British civilization and Christianity, these elites felt that the colonies would be nothing more than savage, godless communities. So let's step back now. While people in England saw emigration as a solution to overcrowding and demographic imbalances, the elites in BC and on Vancouver Island saw female immigration as nothing less than the cure for a society that was heading rapidly towards what they perceived as savagery and chaos. These were notions that were steeped so very deeply in the racist attitudes of the time. White women would, they ardently believed, ensure the very survival of the British Empire and Christianity in some of the youngest, most fledgling colonies in all of the British Empire. Thus, the elites in the region of the Pacific Northwest, joined by various Christian missionaries working in the colonies and the rural environment, called for some sort of scheme to bring white women to the back corner of the British Empire in order that they marry white men and frankly save their societies. But simply put, most women just did not want to go. You see, the trip was one of the longest trips for any British travelers on the planet. Remember, there was no Panama Canal. Greatly exaggerated stories of the wild frontier life, bloodthirsty indigenous tribes, long harrowing journeys on the oceans worked against most promotion efforts. In the end, only a total of four bride ships would ever set sail, bringing a total of just over 100 women to the Pacific Northwest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was difficult for both the female middle-class emigration society and the Columbia Emigration Society to foster any sort of serious interest in women picking up and moving to literally the farthest reaches of the empire. For the female middle-class immigration society, it became a nearly impossible challenge to convince middle-class women that they had better prospects in the wild frontier of the Pacific Northwest. In the end, their schemes would be subsumed by the slightly more successful Columbia Immigration Society, which was able to convince dozens of working-class women that BC and Vancouver Island offered them a better chance at a better life. Now, the voyages themselves were notorious for the terrible conditions aboard. The most infamous voyage was that of the Tynemouth, which arrived in Victoria in September 1862. During that ship's voyage, the crew mutinied, and the captain was forced to use passengers as crew members to get the ship to its intended destination. Meanwhile, the women on board were isolated and locked away for almost the entirety of the trip, in order to keep them out of the gaze of the mostly male crew and passengers on board. Many of the women arrived in Victoria in poor health and suffering from seasickness and malnutrition. The captain of the Tynemouth would in fact face a board of inquiry for the terrible conditions and the state of the women upon arrival. One woman actually died on board due to sickness. The other problem with the brideship schemes was in terms of the treatment of the women when they arrived in Victoria. Often, the Victoria and British Columbia newspapers would exaggerate the numbers of women arriving. On the ship known as the Robert Lowe, which arrived in Victoria's Harbour in January 1863, the British colonist, that is a Victoria newspaper run by future BC Premier Amor de Cosmos, reported that 500 women were on their way. When the ship arrived, it had only three dozen women, ranging from 12 years of age to 19 years of age. The women who did arrive had to face a massive crowd of mostly male onlookers who catcalled and commented on the appearance of each woman as she walked down the gangplank and through the crowd of eager men. In fact, the women would have to be escorted through the crowd by local police and military. One woman was in fact immediately proposed to on the spot by an energetic miner, while another woman, who was deemed to be a bit older than originally purported, was booed by the onlookers. The women were then immediately escorted to the local army barracks, where they were put under armed guard for the first week of their stay. Such was the fear of the restless men of Victoria." A rather humorous incident occurred where a man was caught talking to one of the new arrivals through the fence and was promptly escorted away by local military at the point of a bayonet. Now, eventually, most of the women acclimatized to their surroundings. Many of them found husbands, found work, with the elites ensuring they received their fair share of new domestic staff, and were overall able to forge a better life for themselves. A few more adventurous women, who had worked as prostitutes back in London, went out into the interior of British Columbia and were able to establish fairly successful brothels. 
The story of the bride ships would not last beyond four different ships. The Tynemouth and the Robert Lowe, which we've already introduced in this episode, and the other two, the Marcella and the Alpha. The problematic and turbulent nature of the extremely long voyages and the perpetual mistreatment of the women even after their arrival frankly became an embarrassment for emigration advocates in both Victoria and London. After the final ship arrived in 1870, no more serious efforts were made to specifically bring women into the colony. When BC joined Canada in 1871, it would struggle for many years with its overwhelming demographic imbalance between white males and white females, not reaching a parity like the rest of Canada until the end of the 19th century. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.